I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there and you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects? Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Bernico. This week on the show was a great episode. We have uh, Laurel Marshall Potter, a really fantastic person that I've been following on the internet for a little bit, but finally got a chance to talk to. We got to chat with her. She is a doctoral candidate at Boston College in theology and she's in El Salvador these days doing some really fascinating work on base communities in the middle of a wild political situation. And uh, I don't know about you, Matt, but I've been digging these episodes lately, just uh, talking about international solidarity and getting some more kind of in the field on the ground perspectives. And it was really, really fun to to chat with Laurel about all of that. Yeah, totally. It is very cool to hear about um, her work, first of all. That's great. I'm very into it. Um, I always love some new information that I did not have previously about base communities. But also, it's really interesting to kind of hear about it in the perspective of the the ongoing situation in El Salvador with the uh, state of exception. Something else I actually didn't know very much about. So it was really cool to kind of get into it all and learn a lot of new things. We talked in particular about a really neat article called Yeast in the Dough, Marginal Ecclesial Communities in Contemporary El Salvador. The thing that I like about this article in particular is that, uh, you know, if you are like us and... You are for sure. I'm imagining in my brain. Uh, You know a lot about um, base communities in Latin America from all your favorite uh, liberation theologians, right? They always are talking about these base communities and how they're, you know, this really important part of uh, religious and social life in Latin America. But here's an interesting thing. Those communities still exist, though they're different, um, pretty fundamentally so, uh, than the base communities of like the, you know, 70s and 80s and stuff. So in uh, in this episode, we uh, we talked to Laurel about, uh, of course, the crisis in El Salvador and the state of exception and the 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 bad president, the bad Bitcoin president. I'm not going to say his name; just going to just call him that. <laughs> um, and also, uh, what uh, what base communities look like now um, after all these great out of print Orbis books have been written, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's the current state of them? You know. So, uh, yeah, well, without any further rambling, uh, let's go to Laurel. Laurel, welcome to the podcast. Um, Whenever we have someone new on the show, we always just ask them for a very vague and broad introduction. So um, who are you? What are you all about? Um, How would you introduce yourself to a bunch of people that (laughs) you don't know? Sure. Hi. Um, Well, I'm really pleased to be here. 
I think my current uh, one sentence introduction could be that I'm a PhD candidate in theology at Boston College, and I'm living in El Salvador this year, working on dissertation research. That's great. Uh, congrats on keeping it so short. Oftentimes we have guests and they just go on and on and on. I appreciate uh, this is a short elevator ride between uh, two floors. So you've you've nailed it. Um, that probably means you have a good dissertation, I would think, as well, if you can be succinct. <laughs> we're, we're excited to get to know your work about base communities in El Salvador. But uh, because you're there and the circumstances are pretty dire these days, we're hoping you could also tell us a little bit about what's going on in El Salvador right now. Um, what's happening, uh, especially with this extended uh, state of exception, and, and how are you related to that? Yeah, um, I think that probably the two main things that the average person knows about El Salvador is um, the work of uh, Oscar Romero in the 80s and the prevalence of social violence and gang violence today. So what's going on right now is kind of a continuing saga of the of the gang violence and social violence, police violence situation. <laughs> so in in March, like March 25th and 26th of this year, there was a spike in homicides, um, which we learned later was because the government was negotiating with the gangs and the gangs weren't happy with government responses. And so their threat was by um, murdering over 80 people in like a 36 hour period. And so the government's response to this has been to institute what they're calling a state of exception which has now been going on for over six months. So I don't know that exception still applies to something that's been happening for the majority of the year. Um, and essentially it started by restricting constitutionally guaranteed rights that people have. So the right to private communications, the right to free association. Um, when someone's arrested, the administrative period before they know what their charges are by the constitution is 72 hours. And that's been extended now to 15 days. So people are being held in jail, not knowing what their charges are for 15 days. And then they don't actually have a right to a personal defense attorney either. So people are getting grouped into like groups of 100 or 150 that are all being represented, the collective uh, first hearing by one defense attorney. So, so the hearings at the beginning of April, people were just automatically getting in groups of 100, six more months in prison. Um, the prisons were already overcrowded. It's a situation where like, there's no visitation. If people want food or medicine or hygiene products, their families have to purchase them and send them in. Um, and then they also reformed the penal code. So most people are getting charged with gang collaboration or terrorism even, um, which used to have a pretty reduced um, sentence and now it's 20 to 30 years. So people are facing 20 to 30 year sentences with no right to an attorney. And there's also a fund that the almost bankrupt government has set up to pay people to spy on their neighbors, basically. So people can call the police and give a tip that leads to an arrest and they get paid for it and they don't have to provide any proof or anything. So I know that's kind of a barrage of really insane sounding circumstances, but it, it is as insane as it feels. It is as crazy as it feels. Um, you know, tens of thousands of arrests at this point. Most gang leaders have actually fled the country. So a lot of the people that they're arresting are not any of the people responsible for gang violence actually. But because of how long this dynamic has been affecting Salvadoran society, there are a lot of people, especially from zones or neighborhoods or urban centers um, who agree with these policies. And so in addition to kind of the government uh, implementing these measures, there's a whole sector of civil society that kind of agrees with and supports it. So it just feels like this kind of helpless forever kind of situation. 
um, yeah, that's in a nutshell what's going on. That is a pretty scary story. Uh, you know, I, I remember a few months ago in the United States, uh, I heard a lot of stories about El Salvador's um, president. Um, you know, he's just like this, uh, this wacky Bitcoin guy. Uh, but now on the other side of things, uh, you know, you hear about the state of exception, you hear about the mass, mass arrests. And I don't know, it's really terrifying. Um, you know, it's one thing to like, I think, read about these things and even just hear them outright from you um, on this podcast as someone kind of living in the country at the moment. But like, what does it feel like to be there? What's the vibe in your community? Do people seem scared or off put? I mean, I know you said there are some people who agree, which is, I mean, scary too. But um, I don't know, what what does it feel like to be on the ground there? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm living in the Bahu Lempa region right now, which is kind of in the eastern half of the country down by the coast. Um, and it's where a lot of people relocated after the war and were able to organize into cooperatives and kind of buy land from the land bank that was formed at the time of the peace accords. Um, and it's kind of a bastion of leftist organized people. Um, for that reason, a lot of people here think that they're being particularly targeted. Um, the communities that I'm living among and kind of getting to witness respond to this um, are pretty organized and they've been some of the first communities in the country to in encourage people and help facilitate people uh, submitting habeas corpus petitions to the Supreme Court. Um, and so I think I'm in a, a very special place where most people understand kind of the dynamics of what's happening um, and many people are affected. I think the group that's kind of helping organize the habeas corpus petitions has um, over a hundred family members who are willing to have their cases totally investigated and are convinced of the innocence of their family members that have been detained. Um, that being said, like as much as the experience where I am, I think is kind of a hopeful point for people elsewhere in the country who don't really know what to do or don't live in such an organized place. It also is just overwhelmingly sad. <laughs> Um, it's just such a clearly unjust situation and we meet every Thursday in the afternoon. And so when we go and sometimes not everybody comes or, you know, there's about 20 people that are solidly there and it's just week after week, like their spouses and children and cousins and aunts and uncles have basically been disappeared from their lives and might be disappeared for the next year or 20 to 30 years for actually no reason. And it is, it's just, it's this gaping, like, evil thing that is so hard to look at and so hard to listen to and it's just it's truly heartbreaking um and there's a lot of fear too especially among older generations um so the people who who have been helping organize the habeas corpus group um are the younger members of the base communities in this region a lot of the older members of the base communities are really affected by unhealed war trauma um and seeing soldiers everywhere and seeing police everywhere and having people be disappeared from their homes in the middle of the night really harkens back to the 70s leading up to El Salvador's civil war. And so some older community members have said, you know, this group can't meet in my house or I don't want this group meeting in my community. And so trying to, to deal with these elders who have so informed and formed uh, these younger base community leaders, that's been kind of another inter-community tension that it's just really, really sad to see. Yeah, you mentioned uh, base communities, and maybe it's a good way to sort of bring that in. Uh, you wrote this really amazing paper called Yeast in the Dough, Marginal Ecclesial Communities in Contemporary El Salvador. And maybe at the end, we can find out a little bit, uh, a kind of update from that paper. Maybe we can figure out 
how those base communities are responding to the the crisis right now. Um, but I'd like to kind of set the stage a little bit too about the the things that you research in relation to to everything going on. Um, I think you know Matt and I talk about base communities a lot, uh, but we're not experts on them. <laughs> uh, we always think of you know our favorite liberation theologians, and maybe that makes sense, but that's a kind of limited frame too, right? They're they're so much bigger than that. So. You have, as your paper explains, not only do these base communities still exist in Latin America, but they're a really integral part of, of religious and social life. So for folks maybe who uh, have heard of base communities or have kind of a limited understanding, or maybe they're hearing for the first time even, uh, how would you explain what a base community is and, and what's their significance now into the 21st century? Sure. Um, so base communities were kind of the major pastoral initiative of the Brazilian Bishops Conference in the mid-1950s. Um, so this is before Vatican II. I think a lot of the time they get reframed as kind of a reception of Vatican II. Um, but it was really based in some, some indigenous um, uh, community and culturation kind of movements in Brazil, but also the presence of foreign missionaries from Europe, especially Belgium and France, where the worker priest movement was very strong. And they essentially were like Bible studies after mass. So the priest would say mass and imagine us in the pre-Vatican II church in Latin, back to the people, uh, not a whole lot of interaction. People's Christian life was kind of summed up by receiving the sacraments and going to mass on Sundays. Um, and then afterwards, the priest would invite the community to stay and read the readings in Spanish and kind of comment on them based on what they were going through in their life. So this was an, a, a way of organizing people and kind of doing pastoral work that was certainly then encouraged by the reception of Vatican II, which really emphasized um, scripture as a foundation for the community's liturgical life. Um, so in El Salvador, this, this way of doing pastoral work got here in the late 60s. Um, so after the first meeting of the Latin American bishops at Medellin, as uh, the reception of Vatican II is kind of slowly making its way up from like Argentina, Brazil, Chile, up to the Central American Isthmus. Um, and there were kind of three centers for base communities originally in El Salvador, the Sacamil neighborhood in San Salvador, the communities down by San Vicente and Tecoluca, and, and up in Suchitoto. This is probably uh, too, too close up. Um, but really it, it just contrasted with previous ecclesial life, which was really based on individualist kind of spiritual, transactional almost participation in the sacraments. Um, and I think it relates to some of those big names from liberation theology we've heard of because it's the first step of their method. So Gustavo Gutierrez talks about theology as a second moment, but the SEBs are the first moment. The SEBs are the experience of God as lived and understood in the community. And so folks like Leonardo Boff, Gustavo Gutierrez, Ignacio Yacurilla, and John Sobrino here in El Salvador would pastorally attend to parishes where based communities were active, and they kind of developed their way of doing theology out of that pastoral experience. Cool. That's a really, um, that helps tie everything together, right? It's, it ties together the liberation theologians that we know and love, and then also like the wider practice. That's really helpful, I think. Um, another really helpful thread that you provide in your paper is the shift from Catholic bishops of Latin America describing the base communities as like a nucleus for the life of the church uh, to the base communities becoming like kind of more peripheral communities, right? Um, so this transition. Um, 
but like, I guess, how does that transition happen? Like, how did we get from from point A to point B in um, in like Latin American churches? Yeah, I think the reason that's most commonly given for this is kind of a shift in church politics that you see after the 1960s, 1970s, especially during the papacy of John Paul II in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, base communities in in Latin America were very closely linked to a lot of the social revolutions that were happening in that time. So as I know you guys are familiar with in Nicaragua, in, in El Salvador, in Argentina, Chile, um, base communities, as they linked the social reality that the impoverished majorities were living through with the message of Jesus and the Gospels, they felt inspired from a place of faith to get involved in social justice movements in their countries. And so as the Cold War globally kind of moves on, as John Paul II, who has terrible experiences with communism in Poland, uh, comes to be Pope, um, there's kind of this conflation of socialist, communist, political activism, and Christian-based communities and liberation theology. So from Rome, the Catholic Magisterium kind of tries to expand and like dilute liberation theology a little bit. You see this starting in the documents from Puebla, from the Latin American bishops meeting in Puebla, where they say preferential option for the poor, and young people and cultures. It starts to get diluted a little bit as opposed to kind of sticking with this class analysis that the first generations kind of use. Um, so I think that all of that's really interesting and important to track. But another thing that seems abundantly clear to me, especially here, is just the loss of leadership that happens during these violent insurrections and, and, and struggles in different countries. So in El Salvador, a lot of the priests who were pastorally attending to people in base ecclesial communities were either assassinated or sent into exile. This was also true for religious sisters and thousands of still anonymous lay people. So it was um, the government at the time in the 70s and 80s in El Salvador would see these pastoral leaders as political enemies, um, carrying a Bible or carrying a popular book of hymns uh, was pretty damning for somebody. And so as people were killed or disappeared or had to flee, just the ability to carry on this way of doing and participating in pastoral um, pastoral work among marginalized communities was really lost. There was a really strong formation process in the 70s for catechists, delegates of the word, um, liturgical leaders. And a lot of those people just were removed violently from, from the Salvadoran church. So I think those two reasons um, are important to keep in mind. That's so fascinating and heartbreaking to to kind of draw out uh, that reason for the the change. Uh, one thing you mentioned in your paper is that on the one hand, the base communities present a certain side of the face to the people, but on the other hand, uh, during the Salvadoran dictatorship, in particular in the Civil War, there was another sort of face of the church being presented. Right there's like the church is sort of split in terms of uh, domination and liberation that way. Uh, do you see that kind of going on these days? Like, what does that kind of split look like in Salvadoran society now? Oh, man, this is fascinating stuff. <laughs> um, when So there was a, a pastoral initiative in 1970, in June of 1970, from the archdiocese um, that was part of the process of the reception of Vatican II, the reception of Medellin, and they called it the first week of a pastoral de conjunto. Pastoral de Conjunto is like doing theology together. Conjunto is like a group of people coming together. And so community pastoral work. Um, and the archdiocese in San Salvador was very, very supportive of this. There were lay people, religious sisters, brothers, priests, 
seminarians there participating. But all the other bishops of, at the time, four other dioceses in the country refused to send any delegates. They didn't show up themselves. They said that what's really needed for the church is um, for priests to be more moral. They were worried about the moral corruption of priests by being in contact with lay people so much. Um, and so, so even as base communities are kind of coming into their own in El Salvador, you almost have this rejection of some of the principles of Vatican II. I mean, I, I would argue that Vatican II was never fully received by the Salvadoran church because broader church politics were kind of already at play as people were starting to, to come into this. Um, so today, it's been really interesting for the last five to 10 years. When I first moved here in 2011, in January of the following year, 2012, there is this beautiful mosaic mural on the front of the cathedral downtown that if you Google, you can you can look up, done by Fernando Jord, who is probably the most famous Salvadoran visual artist. And the archbishop took it down overnight. We woke up one morning in January and there was just this pile of rubble and tiles at the foot of the cathedral with no explanation given, like it was really the symbol of, of people's participation in the archdiocese and it was just gone. And then a couple years later, he kind of closed the archbishop, the archdiocese office for human rights that Romero had established. Um, he was really not well seen by the communities. But then as um, Romero's beatification process was initiated and as Romero was canonized, he found himself having to really I think, learn about Romero and educate himself about um, what it meant to be an archbishop at a time of social unrest. And so we saw a lot of positive signs, I think, between 2015 and, and up until recently, um, a lot of openness, some meetings with the SEBs at the archdiocese office. Um, the current archbishop apologized on behalf of the church for the SEBs feeling kind of left out of, of, the, of the structure of the church. Um, so some really positive openings. The celebration of Romero's canonization here in San Salvador was a shared liturgy between the archdiocese and the base communities who have a totally different, not totally different, but some different ways of celebrating. It was pretty beautiful, but the archbishop's response to the current um, state of exception has been uh, less than stellar, to put it lightly, and, and pretty offensive at times. So um, pretty ambiguous. It's, it continues to be pretty ambiguous, as I'm sure most like historical ecclesial power structures are always going to be. I have uh, so many other questions about it, um, and I hope we have time to get into them. But uh, uh, one thing that's that's kind of on my mind is, you know, it's not hard to find sort of like books and articles, especially from the 80s, talking about what lessons these uh, base ecclesial communities have for people in the global north. And, uh, you know, the social contexts were really different then, but people were still trying to make those connections and, and figure out what lessons were there. And the contexts are still different, but it seems like maybe there are some more similarities. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. You can tell me. But you mentioned that the uh, the SEBs are trying to figure out what to do in light of also an increasingly kind of non-Catholic public and, and less diocesan support, as you're saying, this change in the church. And at least that part feels actually kind of similar to my own life and work in a, a Catholic social movement in Canada so, you know, naturally, I'm like, okay, how are they doing it? I got to know so I can take all the help I can get. So what are the lessons uh, from the SEBs maybe uh, trying to negotiate these changing realities? You know, I don't live under uh, a wild dictatorship here uh, in Canada, but that kind of sociological piece, like, um, do, you, do you think there's any kind of uh, neat lessons to be transmitted to those of us who are trying to figure it out uh, up here? You know, one thing I've been thinking a lot about based on... on people's witness here is um, like little C Catholicity. 
um, so when we come together from kind of different perspectives and different points, um, there's kind of a richness that I think is a corrective to maybe first generations of SEBS and liberation theology, which had such a strict and focused um, class mediation, understanding and analyzing reality from the perspective of class and material um, economic poverty. Um, I think now we're starting to see an appreciation of um, different cultures, so indigenous and African diaspora wisdom traditions as partners in the struggle. Um, I think we're starting to see an analysis of gender and sexuality that wasn't present in the first generation. And so this kind of broadened attention to different social factors that cause marginalization and exclusion, I think means that we have a struggle and we have a group made up of a bunch of different little lights out there in a vast darkness. Um, and so that's a pretty different image than a struggle for a victoria final, which is what you would have heard a lot about in the 70s and 80s. So I think there's some wisdom in this, like much less totalizing drive for um, kind of the victory of one way of seeing the world um, and much more of an appreciation of all the different ways that people survive and resist um, these great systems that we're all kind of working against and see see opportunities for allyship and for working together between groups that previously might not have talked much to each other. Um, so that's something I've been thinking about a lot. I think instead of this like class analysis kind of mediation, which the first generations would have called like the social analytic mediation of reality, I think a decolonial mediation is kind of a more proper way of understanding how people are seeing and thinking about history as it unfolds, seeing and thinking about the place of the church in history um, with much more porous borders. Um, it, that, that's a pretty hopeful, hopeful sign for me. I think it's much more realistic to think about resistance as opposed to a final victory, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, kind of driving towards that point, um, your paper picks up this metaphor uh, about base communities, right? Not as like the nucleus of like religious or social life, but as the yeast. So can you talk us through that that metaphor and its significance? I think it, uh, it plays into a lot of like what you were just saying, actually. Yeah, I think it relates a lot. I think thinking about them about as yeast, as as not necessarily the majority experience or the most important experience, it gets us out of this trap of kind of like justifying this way of being church or being defensive about it. And just admitting like, yeah, this is a small experience. It's a ferment for the masses. Um, I, I also like the connection between like how yeast makes dough rise and how the SEBs are kind of this vocal, what, what Metz would call the internal critical public of the church, that tiny little prophetic voice that kind of is a stone in the shoe of the institution and doesn't let it just kind of comfortably churn along. Um, so, so I think yeast in the dough, and there's also just this, in Spanish, great way of talking about it. We're not masa, we're not the dough, we're not the big thing itself, um, we're the fermento, we're the yeast, we're not the masses, we're a small, a small part. And maybe you could uh, give us a bit of a picture of what that, uh, that yeast or those small parts look like today. So for example, like, you know, what, uh, how many people are part of maybe an average based community? <laughs> Is there an average based community? You know, what do they look like? Where, where are the, where do people come from to participate in them? What are the activities? What's it kind of like to be involved in something like that? Yeah. Um, so the first six months of this year for my research, basically what I was doing was just visiting a different based community every Sunday. Um, 
So I feel like at this point in El Salvador, you've kind of got a little bit of everything. You have some communities that, you know, all of them have kind of a liturgical pull of their ecclesial life and then a diaconia or service or action or um, politics pull of what they do. So, for example, there's one rural community out in La Libertad, kind of to the west of San Salvador, that meets on Saturdays and does a celebration of the word, basically. They'll read the readings out of the Missal. Sometimes they'll include a piece of one of Romero's homilies or talk about the news from the day as one of the readings. Um, and then they kind of all reflect on it together as the homily and kind of end with the sign of peace and usually some coffee and sweet bread. So that's kind of a, a normal Sunday for them. Um, and then during the week, they'll, on Tuesdays, usually sell either pastelitos or pupusas or tamales. And with the earnings that they make from that venta, from that uh, fundraiser, on Thursdays, they go visit people who are sick in their community. So visiting the sick is their particular act of diaconia. Um, and so they'll go and, and sit with the person for a while and kind of bring some some financial resources for a trip to the doctor or for buying medication or what have you. Um, and that's their weekly cycle. It's a rhythm that they've been committed to for years um, and are just so, so constant about. Um, and then in other communities, there's there's maybe less liturgical activity, but when they do come together, it's for the anniversary of a martyr or for the anniversary of their community or they're celebrating somebody's graduation from university um, and just this really rich symbolism, um, a lot of elements of nature, seasonal foods, um, plants, pictures of their martyrs and ancestors that have kind of given rise to the community and um, a lot of historical kind of remembering or living again um, in your heart and in your body and in your mind um, this historical process that they lived through and which has given them, them so much hope uh, participation in political marches i mean there's there's a strict connection kind of between people's faith and political involvement so some communities are more explicitly political than others um, but yeah, there's this pretty wide variety of what it looks like these days. I would say in terms of numbers, um, you know, on a national level, it, it's, it's not a majority experience. The SEBs don't make the Archdiocesan pastoral plan. They're not part of, like, if you looked at church documents, they wouldn't show up a lot right now. But um, I would say of the 14 kind of provinces in El Salvador, there's a strong base community presence in maybe six or seven of them. Um, and an average community is probably going to have three to 10 families participating. So maybe um, between like 10 and 25 people at any meeting. And it really does facilitate this kind of like everybody gets a chance to talk. Everybody knows each other. Um, they say, you know, when we go to mass in the parish church, sometimes like on Christmas or whatever, we don't know anybody and it feels so weird. And so the personal encounter and seeing these people once a week regularly is just such a such an important part of what of what keeps them going and keeps them together. Yeah, that's a really cool story. I mean, I like I like hearing about that. What a neat thing. Um, but I guess I'm I'm wondering too, like from more of a structural position. Um, you know, like base communities are not the church proper. Um, and but they're they're also not something that's like totally outside the church. Um, so like structurally speaking, I guess like what is like that liminal position afford base communities? What what do base communities like what can they do uh, or what can they say that's um I, I mean strengthened because of that position? Yeah, yeah. Um this is this is something I've been thinking about a lot, the value of a liminal position in the church. Um when base communities first came about, they came 
that came about inside the parish. It was like a parish group. There was the youth group, there was the liturgical team, and there was the base community. Um, but, you know, for the reasons that we mentioned earlier, magisterial kind of political shifts and, and just kind of the restructuring internally in each country, um, as, as base communities continued forming when people returned from the war, and as they've continued forming in the post-Reconstruction era here in the like 2010s and on, they've mostly come up outside of the parish. So where before people's participation in parish life was kind of uh, made difficult by a geographical distance, now I think there's more of a theological difference between a lot of these communities and what the church is talking about. Um, and so you get to these places and it's so interesting to think about like did these communities leave the church or did the hierarchy leave the church like like where is the heart of the church where is the center of the church and who gets to say who's in and who's out um i think if you listen to stories of, of communities here for example where i live um there there they had painted this beautiful mural on the side of one of their chapels it was you know depicted romero it depicted nature it was the community meeting and one day the the parish priest came and just whitewashed it and like painted over it um in other communities they've had pictures of their martyrs up in the parish church and the parish priest takes them down and says we can't have pictures of non-canonized people in here um and and, you know, doesn't let people participate in communion, um, not a formal excommunication in some cases, but in other cases it is. Um, in another community, there is a river that runs through the community that already had eight hydroelectric dams on it. And there was a business that wanted to put a ninth one on. And the community really rose up against it and blocked the roads. And then they go to church the next Sunday and it's padlocked and there's a letter on the door saying, if you cross this threshold, we'll take legal action against you. And so I just, I'm so struck at how hierarchical figures have the power to shut people out of church. But when you look at it from a perspective of the gospels and the reality of what's going on here, it seems to me that the testimony of the base communities is more central to what it means to be Christian um, than how some of the, the hierarchical figures are acting. Um, and so I think the value then of this liminal space of continuing to claim the church, even if it has rejected you, is that you get to and and like if we think about it physically physical space and geography if you're on the border of something you have access to things that are outside and so the sebs get to bring the wisdom of kind of uh secular political movements of other religions of other spiritual practices and other cultures into their understanding of christianity which i think really enriches it and they also to a degree get to represent the catholic church in some of these political struggles so i feel really proud to be associated with these Christians that are involved in political struggle um, when that's not necessarily the testimony that all Christians are giving. So I think when you're on the border, when you're in this liminal space, um, it's not comfortable maybe, but I think there are some opportunities there without which the church is poor. You know, you mentioned this uh, uh, kind of challenge of plotting the hierarchy and figuring out, you know, what they uh, are able to to kind of Put the boot down on uh, what has it been like in light of um, Pope Francis's papacy and the canonization of Romero? I mean, have those things kind of vindicated the base communities in any way? Do they make it harder for uh, for local bishops to, to do that kind of thing or for a priest to whitewash a mural? Like, you know, it takes a long time to change those infrastructures and uh, kind of maybe paddle upstream uh, of a lot of uh, other changes that were made in, in the many decades before Francis. 
Um, what's that been like? What has that shift been like in uh, in the experience of the Sebs in the local church? Yeah, I think people see Francis pretty unequivocally as a positive figure. I mean, I think they're pretty proud to have a Latin American pope and have somebody who kind of understands the history of, of political struggle in Latin America. Um, and the canonization of Romero, I think for a couple years, certainly kind of calmed these tensions. Um, you know, there was a lot of back and forth about like, the song that the archdiocese composed called him a martyr for love instead of saying he was a martyr for the gospel. And so people felt like that was kind of a toning down of what he really meant. Um, at, at the beatification in 2015, there was this big stage set up at kind of a main bus stop in the middle of the city. And then there were a hundred plastic chairs, like several hundred feet away from the stage that were for quote unquote, the people. And like none of the people knew anybody in those plastic chairs. And then the slogan of the of the canonization was your people made you a saint. And so there was some recognition that like it was these rejected marginal, in many cases, women Catholics that kind of kept Romero's memory alive for so long until the hierarchy kind of caught up. So there were some interesting power shifts, I think, in those years, like between 2015 and 2019, maybe. Um, but to a degree, I do think it's easier for hierarchical figures to recognize Romero because he's not around anymore. And so then when you get to actual political issues right now, um, government, um, the quarantine process in El Salvador is really terrible. And now the state of exception, when the archbishop is called upon to respond to real time political things, it becomes much harder to be prophetic. Well, maybe we can bring this conversation a little bit full circle here. Um, you know, you've told us about the state of exception, and how awful that is, and it is really bad. And we've also heard about, um, you know, how the base communities have been um, figuring some of this out and organizing, and that's cool too. Um, but also in this podcast, we try to talk a lot about solidarity. Um, so what would it look like for Christians in the global north, um, especially in Canada and the U.S., to uh, be in solidarity with the people who are struggling in El Salvador today? Yeah, solidarity is also a huge word here. Um, during and after the war, there were a lot of churches and other um, politically active and leftist groups in the U.S. who really sought to understand and kind of unmask, especially U.S. foreign policy in Central America. Um, but I do think I do think there are some nuances that are kind of changing the way we think about solidarity. One image that has kind of always been has always accompanied that word is kind of a walking with that solidarity is walking with the people. Um, but I'm not sure that that's as helpful of an image as we think, because it assumes that we all have the same starting point. Um, it seems to me that like the reign of God is somewhere in the middle of all of our different starting points, and we need to walk towards each other instead of walking on the same path. I mean, that just feels a little constructed to me. So I've been thinking a lot about um, like the subjectivity of struggles and 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 even subject and object linguistically. Like when we talk about who knows. Um, what's going on and what should happen, you know, affected peoples often know what's actually going on and have proposals about what should happen. Um, and then the role of, of an outsider maybe is to become more of the object, even of the sentence to be known. So instead of being the one who knows, being known and being kind of read and being told like where you're being messed, where you're messing up. Instead of being the one who acts, being the one who lets themselves get acted upon. You know, I think um, solidarity for for me involves a lot of unlearning and undoing a lot of my a lot of the ways that my identity markers have kind of shaped my own conscience and ways that I think acting is good. Um, 
So, so this undoing is not passive either. I mean, to walk towards each other, we have to take practical steps. And so, so I'm coming to think of solidarity more as this having a common destination instead of having the same path. I mean, uh, with all the talk of synodality these days in the church, I really appreciate that. <laughs> That's a good note. I'm going to be thinking about that a lot, a lot this week, uh, not starting at the same place um, on that path. So thanks for that. Um, you know, one thing I think a lot about with respect to base communities is kind of what's what's the future of them. After the 90s, there was like article after article about how liberation theology is dead. This way of doing church is uh, is going to pass away. And it's clearly shifted, right, as your article points out. There are big, big changes, but um, saying that they're weakened is maybe not the right word, right? <laughs> They've got some kind of other strength, maybe. And, uh, of course, the experience is, is different across Latin America. Um, what do you think is uh, the the future for base communities in, in El Salvador and uh, across the, the continent in general? Yeah, I think that's something that base communities themselves are, rec- are reckoning with. Um, as the leadership becomes younger and more lay, and there's these young professional people that have families um, who also are very committed to their communities, that looks a lot different than a priest or a religious sister who has all day to go visit people and draw people together and spend time on on prepping pastoral work. Um, so that's that's certainly a factor in what's going on. But I do think that they're a little bit like um, COVID, maybe. <laughs> in the sense that we'll continue to mutate and continue to kind of figure out how to stick around and, and keep bothering uh, kind of more hegemonic uh, ways of being church. Um, there's certainly, you know, every country is kind of in a different space. And I think El Salvador is, is similarly trying to figure out how this new generation is kind of going to do pastoral work and whether that's going to involve recourse to the hierarchical church or, or kind of what's going to happen. I think it's something we're not really going to know for another several decades, maybe. And do you have any sense of maybe like how El Salvador's experience of base communities stack up against um, or alongside other other countries, you know, like in, in Brazil, for instance, uh, like what's the, the sort of relationship there? Obviously, vastly different countries, very, very different kind of demographics and populations. But um, what's that kind of feeling across the, the continent? What's, what's maybe the state of the, the movement as far as you can tell from where you are? Yeah, it's it's interesting. So in July of this year, we had a meeting of a bunch of um, like young pastoral leaders in different communities across Latin America here in El Salvador. And everybody was so excited to come to El Salvador because I think it represents for them the legacy of Romero, kind of the legacy of base communities during the war, certainly the artistic and like musical expression of the SEBs here in El Salvador is shared throughout the continent. El Salvador and Nicaragua, I think, are pretty special places um, in the Americas for the SEBs and for liberation theology. Um, and so I think it does have this kind of symbolic pride of place. Um, and in El Salvador and Nicaragua, to a, to, for the most part, um, this separation from the hierarchy is really marked. In other countries, that's not true. In Guatemala and Honduras, Panama, there's a lot of close connection and getting to work with some bishops who include the subs in their pastoral plans. It's very dependent on who the who the figure is. Um, I know Brazil also has a very active movement still. And so I think there's probably a lot of similarities between Brazil and El Salvador, but to some degree they operate in different worlds because of linguistic barriers and geographical barriers and all that kind of stuff. Um, Every four years, there's a continental meeting of base communities in 2024 in November. It's going to be here in El Salvador. 
Um, and I think that they're taking up the topic of synodality as kind of what they're going to workshop at that time. So it'll be after the synod meeting in the Vatican. Um, and I think it's going to be kind of a reception of what comes out of that. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how that goes too. Laurel, it's been really cool hearing from you and hearing about your work. Uh, we'll definitely have to check in again in the future to uh, see what's going on in El Salvador and how things are shaping up. Hopefully better. Hopefully things are only get better, but um, we'll walk towards the answer with you. That's for sure. <laughs> no matter what happens. Um, but uh, I guess lastly, maybe just to wrap things up, where can people find and support your work? Uh, we know that you just helped uh, put together a great piece in the last issue of G's on global solidarity. Um, definitely a shameless plug. We love G's. Definitely get this uh, this new issue. It's very cool. Um, but apart from that, uh, where else can people find uh, your work and uh, read about what you're involved with? Oh, well, I'm so grateful to have met both of you and to get to talk about my closest interests for the last hour. Um, you know, so Liz Gandolfo at Wake Forest University, who lived in El Salvador for a while as a volunteer, and I put out a book in July kind of about the process of the SEBS from the 80s on. Uh, it's called Re-Remembering the Reign of God, the Decolonial Witness of Salvador's Church of the Poor. And I really hope that it can get out there and that we can start getting some feedback about it and, and talk about what's going on with the SEBS today. The last chapter is actually about solidarity between churches in the epistemic north and churches in the epistemic south. So um, that will articulate it, I'm sure, much better than I did here. And I'm really excited for people to start getting their hands on it. That's great. Well, we're going to have to read it. We'll have you back on. Maybe we'll talk about that book some more. I'm excited to get into it. Um, Laura, it's so uh, fun to, to get to know you and have you on the show. And we'll have you back again for sure. Thank you both so much. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you should go read the whole article that Laurel wrote. There's a ton of stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk about. There's a really great passage or, or section in there on uh, decoloniality in uh, base communities, and it's great. Laurel kind of touched on it, but you should read the whole thing. It is fantastic. Um, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can find us on Twitter you can try your rest to email us, but listen, we don't really check it that much anymore. Let's just be honest. Uh, you, our, our intro music is by Mario Armstrong, and our outro is by the Illog Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I